are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello and welcome to the Black Experience Hour. This is a weekly program bringing you news and opinion pieces from a variety of sources. This one is being pre-recorded on the 6th of October for the listening week that begins the 14th. Your reader's name is Susan Shirey. Opening with TheRoot.com. This article written by Candace McDuffie. It was posted September 20th. Google and Howard University are changing the future of voice technology with Project Elevate Black Voices. On Wednesday, September 20th, Google and Howard University announced a dynamic partnership entitled Project Elevate Black Voices. The collaboration has one underlying principle, to make it easier for black folks to use automatic speech recognition technology, ASR. In order to successfully use voice products, we frequently have to code switch to be understood Google's own research confirmed that black people's experience with ASR is worse when compared to white users and is working diligently to change that. In conjunction with Howard, the tech company embarked on Project EBV, which will assemble a premium African-American English, AAE, speech data set. In addition, the renowned HBCU will be able to share the data set while creating a blueprint for responsible data collection. One of the most impressive characteristics of the Alliance is that Howard University will retain ownership and licensing of the data set. We want to make sure that we are creating these inclusive experiences, Google responsible AI researcher and social psychologist Dr. Courtney Heldreth told The Root, It was very clear to us that we were falling short when it came to voice technologies more broadly. A lot of the things that my team looks at is how do we collect new data responsibly and ethically, knowing the history of data collection practices for African Americans. There's a lot of distrust and mistrust, rightfully so, towards technology. We want to make sure that when we're collecting something that's as sensitive as voice data, which is considered biometric data, we are doing it in partnership with folks who are very connected to and understand the black community. Google's project manager, pardon me, manager, Daryl Wright, reiterates the importance of trust when it comes to executing such a vital yet sensitive task. He said, I'm excited that we're able to kind of take black language put and put it in the technology that all of our users are able to interact with. The access that Howard University has within the black community is just outstanding, right? In order for us to even get to the point where we're even collecting data, having agreements on what it is we're trying to accomplish, that relationship needed to be in place for us to do the rest of the work on data collection. If we were really going to take a community approach, Howard was absolutely going to be the partner. Project EBV's principal investigator and Howard University associate professor, Dr. Gloria Washington, explains what this endeavor means to her on a personal level. 
I am a black woman and I have been fascinated in my research about how much black women experience microaggressions on a daily basis. The way that people communicate to each other impacts workplace communications and essentially everything else. I want to make sure that from an academic perspective we can utilize smarter technology that'll help reduce this bias so that everyone can be their authentic selves. She adds that the alignment of Howard and Google is a strategic one. She said, Google acknowledged that this data set collection of black voices across the United States should be done by an entity that is going to uphold the ideals founding of American, of African American English. Howard University was right at the forefront of that. Like Dr. Washington, Wright's inherent attachment to Project EBV as a black man is palpable, but he insists his focus remains consistent throughout. I think about this a lot when doing this work because this is something that my family will benefit from, my friends will benefit from, people that I know and love and respect and have raised me will benefit from. But I think the same amount of rigor and thoughtfulness that you would put to any other project you're doing at Google is pretty much the same. In addition, Dr. Heldreth hopes that Project EBV will illuminate the way white supremacy has used black culture for clout while simultaneously trying to erase it. It's interesting that black language is policed, but it's also used to gain popularity and prestige. It's been reappropriated in ways that we are, pardon me, that are just kind of nasty. When you look at the history of linguistic discrimination in the United States, American English in and of itself came from the slave trade. This was the dialect that emerged from British Caribbean colonization. There is a rich culture and history associated with black language, but in regards to linguistics, it is unfortunate to see the ways that black language has been systematically discriminated against. This was the other impetus for Project Elevate Black Voices. To capture natural, organic black speech as beautiful as it is. Ultimately, Dr. Washington believes, like Dr. Heldreth and Wright, that a bold undertaking like this will work only, pardon me, will only work to reaffirm our cultural contributions. The reason why this project is so important from my perspective is that by gathering audio data to help voice assistant technology, we're allowing black people to tell their stories. From the Howard perspective, we are honoring our ancestors, the people who are currently in the community, and any future individuals who want to utilize this research for the celebration of black people. Next article written by Jessica Washington, published on the 6th of October. The FDA is taking major action to protect against harmful chemicals in hair products. An inquiry, after an inquiry, pardon me, from Representatives Ayanna Presley and Chantel Brown, the Food and Drug Administration proposed a new rule to ban harmful chemicals in relaxers. Earlier this year, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, Democrat Massachusetts, and Chantel Brown, Democrat Ohio, urged the Food and Drug Administration to provide answers about the safety of chemical relaxers. 
Now the FDA is responding in a major way. In a root exclusive, the Congresswoman, pardon me, that's the Congresswomen, shared that the FDA is proposing a new ban on harmful chemicals found in chemical straighteners, including formaldehyde and other formaldehyde-releasing chemicals. The FDA's proposal to ban these harmful chemicals in hair straighteners and relaxers is a win for public health, especially the health of black women who are disproportionately at risk from these products as a result of systemic racism and anti-black hair sentiment, Representative Presley told The Root. Brown was equally enthusiastic about the announcement and said, On behalf of women, especially black women across the country, I applaud the FDA's new proposed rule banning formaldehyde and other harmful chemicals from hair straighteners, she wrote. Presley and Brown's original letter to the FDA noted that black women have historically felt immense pressure to use these products despite some of the potential risks. As a result of anti-black hair sentiment, black women have been unfairly subjected to scrutiny and forced to navigate the extreme politicization, pardon me, politicization, forgive me, politicization of hair. That's what the representatives wrote in a letter. They went on, Hence, generations of black women have adapted by straightening hair in an attempt to achieve social and economic advancement. Manufacturers of chemical straighteners have gained enormous profits, but recent findings unveil potentially significant negative health consequences associated with these products. The rule isn't in place yet, but it's still an important step in addressing the serious concerns surrounding the safety of chemical relaxers, a product overwhelmingly marketed to black women. A 2020 Harvard study found that harmful chemicals were present in 50% of hair products marketed to black women, compared to just 7% of products marketed to non-black women. And last year, a separate National Institute of Health study found that frequent users of chemical straighteners, which means four or more times a year, were twice as likely to develop uterine cancer as people who did not use chemical relaxers. Regardless of how we wear our hair, we should be allowed to show up in the world without putting our health at risk, said Presley. I applaud the FDA for being responsive to our calls and advancing a rule that will help prevent manufacturers from making a product, pardon me, making a profit at the expense of our health. The administration should finalize this rule without delay. Our next article comes from blackenterprise.com, written by Darren Presley, posted October 5th. Walmart empowers black entrepreneurs nationwide. In a transformative move to bolster economic opportunities for black entrepreneurs, the Russell Innovation Center for Entrepreneurs, an acronym RICE, proudly announces an $800,000 grant from Walmart, facilitated by the Walmart Center for Racial Equity. This collaboration between RICE and Walmart aims to advance economic mobility for black entrepreneurs in Atlanta and throughout the nation. Monique Carswell, director of Walmart.org Center for Racial Equity, expressed her enthusiasm about this partnership via email 
highlighting Rice's consistent dedication to nurturing black businesses. She said, through the Walmart.org Center for Racial Equity, Walmart and the Walmart Foundation support initiatives that aim to address equity, including the wealth gap. The $800,000 grant from Walmart will help the Russell Innovation Center for Entrepreneurs invest in businesses that have been under-resourced and underfunded, which in turn can lift up the historically disadvantaged communities they serve. This work aims to create a more equitable entrepreneurial ecosystem, not only in Atlanta but across the nation. Pardon me, the grant supports the recently launched PayPal Retail Academy by Rice, a groundbreaking initiative educating entrepreneurs on the intricacies of starting and expanding a retail business. To mark this partnership, Walmart presented the grant at a special event hosted by the Russell Center headquarters in Atlanta on October 2nd. The event promised an engaging lineup, including panel discussions, mentorship sessions, and entertainment, showcasing the vibrant entrepreneurial spirit of Atlanta. A unique feature of the event was the Walmart Made Local Trailer Tour, celebrating Walmart's $350 billion commitment to U.S. manufacturing over the past decade. Jay Bailey, CEO of Rice, emphasized the significance of this grant, seeing it as a significant step towards its mission of fostering black businesses. Bailey told the Black Enterprise, The ripple effect of this grant is what it's all about. We are looking at companies who are doing better, creating better products, gaining greater distribution, creating jobs and increasing wealth. The partnership is specifically about developing a world-class platform to grow businesses in the retail space, and in this case, consumer products. This collaboration underscores its shared commitment with Walmart to promote equity through economic mobility, shaping the future of black entrepreneurship. Next piece of news comes from the Associated Press via ictnews.org, Indian Country Today. Muskogee Creek Nation judge rules in favor of citizenship for freedmen. Freedmen citizenship has been a difficult issue for tribes as the U.S. reckons with its history of racism. Written by Sean Murphy. Dateline, Oklahoma City. A judge for the Muscogee Creek Nation in Oklahoma ruled in favor of citizenship for two freedmen descendants, potentially paving the way for hundreds of other descendants. District Judge Danette Moser, based in the tribe's headquarters in Okmulgee, ruled in favor of two black Muscogee Nation freedmen, Rhonda Grayson and Jeff Kennedy, who had sued the tribe's citizenship board for denying their applications. Mauser reversed the board's decision and ordered it to reconsider the applications in accordance with the tribe's Treaty of 1866, which provides that descendants of those listed on the Creek Freedmen Roll are eligible for tribal citizenship. Freedmen citizenship has been a difficult issue for tribes as the U.S. reckons with its history of racism. The Cherokee Nation has granted full citizenship to its freedmen, while other tribes like the Muscogee Nation 
have argued that sovereignty allows tribes to make their own decisions about who qualifies for citizenship. Muskogee Nation Attorney General Jerry Wisner said in a statement that the tribe plans to immediately appeal the ruling to the Muskogee Nation's Supreme Court. Wisner said, We respect the authority of our court but strongly disagree with Judge Mouser's deeply flawed reasoning in this matter. The MCN Constitution, which we are duty-bound to follow, makes no provisions for citizenship for non-Creek individuals. We look forward to addressing this matter before our nation's highest court. Tribal officials declined to comment further. Next article comes from the Denver Post, originally published and updated on September 25th. From History in Colorado, Not welcome to stop for gas or food. Decades later, Colorado's history of sundown towns still lingers. Not that long ago, some communities in the state were intentionally all-white and didn't welcome people of color, either as travelers or residents. This is written by Megan Ululani Boyantan. Gary Jackson, a 77-year-old Denver native, remembers when traveling to certain parts of the U.S. as a black man meant inhospitality and sometimes danger. Since the time of Jim Crow, black travelers have always dealt with racial discrimination and incidents of violence, he said. On their journeys, people of color remained especially wary of sundown towns or enclaves of entirely white populations that wouldn't accept their business or company which existed in Colorado and beyond. Instead, they'd planned their trips to not only avoid these indignities, but to also guarantee their physical safety. Jackson recalls an instance from his junior year at the University of Colorado Boulder in 1966 when he and his college roommate, W. Harold Sonny Flowers, Jr., embarked on a road trip from Denver to Oakland, California for spring break. Flowers drove his Oldsmobile, which broke down in Rawlings, Wyoming. A repairman informed the friends that the fix would take a couple of days. The students, both young black men, quote, went to one of the local hotels in Rawlings, and we were turned down, said Jackson. Instead, the mechanic that was repairing our car allowed Sonny and I to sleep in his trailer overnight until the car was repaired. The U.S., Colorado included, is dotted with former sundown towns where people of color suffered myriad degradations from restaurants, hotels, and gas stations declining to serve travelers to neighborhoods rallying against potential homeowners with melanin. And the possible threat of physical harm always loomed for those who dared to linger after sunset. While Jackson, a retired senior Denver County Court judge, doesn't consider Rollins a sundown town because of its small black population, his experience as a young man echoes stories passed down to him by his relatives detailing their own struggles with sundown towns. The reach of sundown towns, established as all-white on purpose, could also apply to cities, counties, and subregions, According to Tougaloo College in Jackson, Mississippi, the late sociologist James Lowen and his students developed an historical database of suspected former sundown towns 
by crowdsourcing information based on U.S. census data on racial composition, local newspapers, oral histories, and more. Called the world's only registry of sundown towns, this database is and always will be incomplete, according to its website. There are too many sundown towns for us to have found them all, it says. Tugaloo College's database of possible former sundown towns for Colorado includes 11 towns, several of which remain unconfirmed, but some, such as Cherry Hills Village, are recognized by black Coloradans as communities where they weren't embraced, along with others that didn't make the official list like Golden, Estes Park, and Loveland. Today, about 5.8 million people live in Colorado, with around 67% of them identifying as white alone, 23% as Latino, and close to 5% as black, according to the U.S. Census Bureau. As many black Americans left the South to build new lives in other parts of the country, they often faced the same kind of discrimination they were trying to leave behind. In Colorado, 175 instances of lynching took place between 1859 and 1919, according to Colorado Encyclopedia. Before statehood, it was often used in mining towns as a type of, quote, frontier justice. Only five recorded lynchings are explicitly tied to race, but many more took place, particularly in the early 20th century, said the encyclopedia. In 1900, hundreds of people in Lyman watched as Preston Porter Jr., a 15-year-old black boy working on the railroad with his father, was burned alive for the alleged rape and murder of a white preteen girl, Louise Frost. Pages of his Bible were distributed as souvenirs. The Ku Klux Klan, a white supremacist hate group founded in Tennessee in 1865, also made its way to Colorado with a strong membership in the state at the turn of the 20th century. Klan member Clarence Morley served as a Republican governor from 1925 to 1927. In Denver, if you threw a rock in the early 20s, chances are you'd hit a Klansman because there were so many, said historian Tom Simmons. Black residents also faced prejudice in the housing market where white property owners and landlords not only refused to rent to black tenants but also established restrictive racial covenants that prevented purchase of property in many neighborhoods. Through the 1960s, according to a portion of the City of Fort Collins website dedicated to the history of that northern Colorado community, Black students at Colorado State University continued to struggle with these issues into the 70s as at least two subdivisions, Circle Drive and Slade Acres, illegally continued to ban non-whites from owning or occupying property within their boundaries, says the quote. Even outside of these neighborhoods, a practice called redlining hamstrung black Americans who tried to buy their own homes Jackson's great-grandfather, William Pitts, was born into enslavement in Missouri, but learned to read, write, and work as a carpenter. He encouraged his family to move to Colorado after a visit in 1919 to see his son, who was injured in World War I and hospitalized at Fitzsimmons Army Hospital in Aurora. 
Pitts noted that the quality of life was better in Colorado than in Missouri. Today, Aurora is home to one of the state's largest black populations, making up almost 17% of that city's 393,500 residents. It's 44% white, 29% Latino, and 7% Asian also. Pitts went on to build several family homes in Cherry Creek North and a cabin in Lincoln Hills, the country's only black-owned resort community west of the Mississippi. Between 1922 and 1965, Jackson did this. Coloradans bought up the majority of the development, which was made up of 1,700 total lots, more than 1,100 occupied, but others from Kansas, Nebraska, Wyoming, and more also purchased land in Lincoln Hills. Places we have to be careful of. Terry Gentry, History Colorado's Engagement Manager for Black Communities, points to sundown towns scattered all over the state. Black drivers leaving Denver to travel north would invest in a full tank of gas so you wouldn't run into any trouble between here and Cheyenne. You could drive north and see a sign that says, We honor Jim Crow laws, she said. There may not be any signs at all. There may be people that will approach you and let you know what your limitations are in their community. And depending on the region, sundown towns impacted other marginalized communities too, They might have had laws back in the day that said no Chinese were allowed, or indigenous people were on a reservation nearby a town and they weren't allowed to go in the town, said Gentry. Even communities near urban areas like Denver and neighborhoods within them could be dangerous. You might go into a city and there's a neighborhood you better not drive through, she said. As of last year, Denver's population of around 713,000 breaks down as 54% white, 29% Latino, and 9% black. A native Coloradan Gentry's relatives arrived in the Centennial State over a century ago. On her maternal side, her great-great-grandparents moved in 1903 from Nashville, Tennessee, with the white family they worked for. On her paternal side, her great-grandfather made a name for himself as the first licensed black dentist in Colorado. She recalls the discrimination her great-grandparents faced in the 20s when black Denverites tried resettling beyond Five Points, the historically black neighborhood referred to as the Harlem of the West. Gentry's relatives attempted to move to the nearby Whittier neighborhood. She said, The neighbors found out that it was a black man building this house, and so they did everything they could to get him out of there. They burned a cross on the front lawn, and they threatened him. He packed up his family and moved west of Downing Street to 32nd Street instead. She said, We still have areas throughout the state where you have to pay attention because they still don't want people of color living in different areas. That's not as prevalent as it was 50, 60, 70 years ago, but it's still part of our consciousness. For her part, she pays extra attention when traveling through Cherry Hills Village. Gentry attended an event in the city a few weeks ago, quote, and we made every effort to be on the road out of the area as the sun was setting. Cherry Hills Village, with a population of a little over 6,000, is made up of 91% white residents, 6 Latino, and 0 black. 
I moved to Colorado in 1995 and to Cherry Hills Village in 2004, so I don't know anything about those assertions, nor do I know what may or may not have changed since then, said Mayor Katie Brown in an emailed statement. She went on, I have no information upon which to comment, she said. Gentry said, every day I get up, I have to confront somebody wishing I wasn't here. When we do come to the table and understand that equity and freedom should be for everyone, not just for a select few. Oh, pardon me, that's when do we come to the table and understand that equity should be for everyone and not just a select few. Next article comes from the New York Times, published September 27th, written by Elizabeth Williamson. America's Black Cemeteries and Three Women Trying to Save Them. In Georgia, Texas, and Washington, D.C., three black women are working to preserve desecrated African-American burial grounds and the stories they hold. The child's headstone is inscribed simply Nanny, marking the grave of a seven-year-old girl who died on May 18, 1856. She is buried in one of Washington's oldest black cemeteries in a neglected corner of Georgetown. For years, she has touched visitors who have left toys, dolls, and birthday cards at her grave. This year, on Juneteenth, the June 19th holiday commemorating emancipation, 200 people visited the Mount Zion Female Union Band Society cemeteries to see Nanny's grave and others buried there. The crowd was a big one for the long-struggling burial grounds, adjacent to another one and separated by only a battered cyclone fence from the neighboring Oak Hill Cemetery, the premier final address for Washington's largely white elite. It was amazing that such a large, multiracial group had come, said Lisa Fager, the executive director of the Black Georgetown Foundation, a nonprofit managing the preservation of those two cemeteries. After the visitors had gone, someone set fire that night to Nanny's grave, scorching her tombstone and destroying its decorations. Miss Fager, unaware of the damage when she led a tour group to the grave the next morning, let out a scream upon discovering the charred grass, pardon me, the charred grass and melted toys. Georgetown is a moneyed enclave, well monitored by home security cameras and police, but the culprit has not been found. The vandalism of Nanny's grave is a reflection of the decay, destruction, and desecration plaguing many of America's black cemeteries. From tiny, moss-enshrouded plantation plots to sprawling urban sites, tens of thousands of these burial grounds lie in ruins, their history lost and fading. Pardon me, that's fading or lost. Three black women shocked by the condition of cemeteries in Washington, Georgia, and Texas have turned their anger into action. None have prior experience in historic preservation, landscape architecture, or design, but like many others working to save black cemeteries, they view the work as a sacred trust and a payment of a debt to ancestors who led the way. We stand on their shoulders, said Margot Williams, who founded a nonprofit entrusted with the care of Olive Wood Cemetery in Houston. 
In Washington, Ms. Fager single-handedly took on the city and federal government when work crews dug into the border of the female Union Band Society Cemetery to revamp a bike path. In Midland, Georgia, Yamona Pierce demanded that Georgia Power repair the damage from plowing an access path over graves at Pierce Chapel African Cemetery. In Houston, Ms. Williams pushed a lawnmower the mile to and from her home to Olivewood for months, eventually convincing the county to legally entrust her with the overgrown cemetery's care. No accurate count exists of how many black burial grounds survive. Brent Leggs, the director of the National Trust for Historic Preservation's African American Cultural Heritage Action Fund, notes that a recent grant competition drew proposals from 5,400 black cemeteries seeking a total of some $650 million, more than six times the amount available from private and corporate donors. The Trust has begun to map black burial places and offers preservation grants, but the work is slow and the money never enough. Within the black community, there's a deep well of civic needs, and it can be difficult to make the case for preservation, Mr. Legg said, but this is about reminding the nation of its social responsibility to care for its history. Washington provides little help. Late last year, Congress passed the African American Burial Grounds Preservation Act, which authorized $3 million for competitive grants to identify, research, and preserve black cemeteries. Congress has yet to appropriate even that. The gate to Pierce Chapel African Cemetery was padlocked, and beyond it was a trash-filled, overgrown lot. But Miss Pierce, who had traveled in August 2019 from Washington, D.C. to Midland, Georgia, with her two teenage daughters, to find her ancestors' graves, was determined to press on. Miss Pierce, there, there is no known relation between her last name and that of the cemetery, inquired at the Pierce Chapel United Methodist Church across the road, Soon, a young man in a pickup truck met her, her daughters and two cousins at the cemetery's entrance. Founded in 1828, the cemetery was a burying place for at least 500 people enslaved on nearby plantations in Harris County. Relatives of Mrs. Pierce's, by then well into their 90s, had long told her that her great-great-great-grandparents were buried there. They recalled cleaning their graves in a cemetery whose stones, pottery, and plantings of yucca and periwinkle were a window into ancestral burial practices. The young man, who said he was a descendant of one of the original landowners, questioned Miss Pierce about her connection to the cemetery and then agreed to let the group in. Soon they were picking their way over downed branches to a few sagging gravestones, Standing aghast in a scrub forest, humiliated that the young man had treated her like a trespasser, Miss Pierce could barely look at her girls. She said, I had no words for them. I felt the pain and hurt that my mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother must have felt, the reason they never took us out there. On a subsequent trip, she found a forlorn stone that tore at her heart. No bigger than a book, it was inscribed simply, Lucy. She did not find any of her own family's tombstones. Returning home to a comfortable life in Washington, she recalled, I took to my bed and cried for days.
Although she had volunteered at her daughter's private school and worked for a foundation related to her husband's work as an intellectual property lawyer, she had no preparation for restoring a deteriorating cemetery more than 700 miles away. Still, she said, I couldn't coexist with that or ignore it and pretend like we didn't see it and it never happened. I thought about all of these women in that cemetery who blazed a trail for me to be a, pardon me, for me to be here and my daughters to be here, and all of that love that I remember in my home and in my family. But my daughter said it best. Mama, we cannot let our family be buried in a trash dump like that. The following year, Miss Pierce formed the nonprofit Hamilton Hood Foundation, named for two of her enslaved ancestors, Jane Hamilton and Owen Hood, to educate the public about the historical significance of the cemetery and to raise money for restoring it. She soon discovered something that infuriated her. Part of the cemetery had been destroyed decades before to make way for nearby utility poles used by Georgia Power and the cable provider Mediacom. She said they cut a road through the middle of the cemetery, they bulldozed or obliterated everything. John Kraft, a Georgia Power spokesman, disputed Miss Pierce's characterization of the construction as a road. He called it a utility right-of-way, said the work occurred some 80 years ago, and that the property, he said, was not well known or marked as a cemetery. Thomas Larson, a senior official at Mediacom, said a company later bought the Mediacom and pardon me, later bought by Mediacom, installed its lines on Georgia Power's poles some 30 years ago and did not damage what he said looked at the time like a junkyard. But under pressure from Miss Pierce and a council of descendants, she organized the companies removed the lines in 2021. They acknowledged they did not ask any descendants of people buried there for permission to do the work that is required by state law. Still, neither company has repaired the damage. Mediacom offered the foundation $2,500 in exchange for a waiver on future claims, an account that Ms. Pierce rejected as insultingly small. Georgia Power told Ms. Pierce that the Hamilton Hood Foundation had to own the property before it would consider paying for improvements. The landowner, Sarah Bankhead, said in an interview last month she is considering selling or donating the cemetery to the foundation, but she's not made a decision. The foundation has in the meantime spent thousands of dollars on restoration, including archaeological studies, cadaver dogs, and ground-penetrating radar to find bulldozed and lost graves. Sometimes, Miss Pierce sees families carrying flowers and balloons to the well-tended graveyard across the road where the white land owners are buried. Someday, she said, I want my daughters to do the same thing at Pierce Chapel. This year, the National Trust placed that cemetery on its list of 11 most endangered historic places in America. In Houston, black history threatened by floods. Ms. Williams founded the Descendants of Olivewood in Houston 20 years ago, and since then the work of restoring a cemetery of 4,000 of the city's earliest black residents, including a dozen of her ancestors, has been an exhilarating, exhausting journey for her. Her work is now so well known that black people call her from all over Texas, asking what to do about family grave sites used as dumps or trampled by cattle. I always tell them it takes blood, sweat, and tears, literally, 
Miss Williams said. She went on, There are times when I sit by my grandfather's headstone and say, I can't do this, it's killing me. Miss Williams, 60, first learned of Olive Wood's condition in 1999 when her grandmother died, and Miss Williams thought the family might bury her in a family plot there. She was shocked by what she found. Out-of-control vines and weeds obscured every family marker. Her grandmother was interred elsewhere, but Miss Williams could not stop thinking about Olivewood. The cemetery was the final resting place for many of Houston's black religious leaders, wealthy merchants, veterans of both world wars, and at least one of the Buffalo soldiers. Lucy F. Farrow, who was instrumental in the development of American Pentecostalism and was the niece of an abolitionist, Frederick Douglass, is buried there, as is Richard Allen, a Republican state legislator who in 1878 became the first African-American Texan to campaign for statewide office in an unsuccessful run for lieutenant governor. Miss Williams said, They opened the doors for me in so many ways. Her grandfather founded a civic club in the historically black Houston neighborhood where Miss Williams grew up, and her father was a precinct watcher on voting days. She said, My dad loved this community. My grandfather loved this community, so it just trickled down. Over the years, in between caring for her daughter at a bank and as a crossing guard, she said she was particularly inspired by the stories of the women buried in Olivewood. They established schools for music and art, foundations and societies for people coming out of emancipation, she said. Even in those difficult times, they still found the energy for their families and their communities and to make them what they were. Those women, they drove me. When Miss Williams appealed to local government for help clearing the cemetery, she was told to do it herself. For six months, in 2003, she used a borrowed lawnmower, sickle, and rake to clear weeds, which drew the notice and help from the County Historic Commission. Ms. Williams created the foundation that same year. By 2008, the descendants of Olivewood had gained stewardship of the cemetery and help from the surrounding community to maintain it. As with many old burial grounds, Olivewood's biggest threat is water. Uncontrolled flooding from the adjacent bayou, made worse by nearby development, has been washing graves into the adjoining ravine, Recently, a troop of Boy Scouts clearing brush there found a human skull and teeth. Those now rest in a storage unit along with other bones awaiting reburial on higher ground. In Houston, we're not in love with preservation. We're in love with development and what brings in the cash, said Miss Williams. Olive Wood has been recognized as an historic site by UNESCO and the state of Texas, but those honors do not pay to maintain the 7.5-acre site which receives no government money. Ms. Williams recalls a city official telling her, those people are dead, they don't pay any taxes, so why should we worry about them? Near the beginning of her quest to save Olivewood, Ms. Williams had to prove her familial connection to the site in court. She dug through family papers and eventually found a ledger recording the $2 her grandmother had paid for her grandfather's plot. She recalled, I said, well, good night, sweet Irene. How do you get off with paying $2 to maintain a plot? That would not even buy a weed-eater twine. In Washington, it pains Miss Fagan, 
Parmimus Fager, when neighbors in Georgetown expressed dismay at the Mount Zion Female Union Band Society's cemeteries. Disrepair, but do not maintain them, particularly given the largesse expended on the cemetery next door. That is Oak Hill, a rolling 15-acre site with a lake, fountain, and curving walkways lining the 19th century monuments. The final resting place, among others, of former Secretary of State Dean Acheson, as well as Catherine Graham, the former publisher of the Washington Post, and Ben Bradley, the Post's legendary executive editor. That cemetery is raising money to restore its 160-year-old Bigelow Iron Fence, named for the renowned designer Jacob Bigelow. That a $1.8 million project will be funded entirely with private money. In contrast, the Black Georgetown Foundation, the nonprofit caring for the two cemeteries, has $55,000 in the bank. Miss Fagan, pardon me, Miss Fager, who is 53, said, I get paid when we're able to pay me. The National Trust stepped in earlier this year and gave the foundation a $100,000 grant to help with her salary. Ms. Fager was diagnosed with cancer last year, and she pays for her treatment partly through a GoFundMe campaign. She has overseen Mount Zion Female Union Band Society since 2019 after working in the recording industry consulting for the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation, and starting a nonprofit called Industry Ears, which called out broadcasters for stereotypical portrayals of African Americans in music and media. She said, I'm good at making noise. Mount Zion, formerly the Methodist Burying Ground, was founded in 1808 as a cemetery for white and black people who attended Montgomery Street Methodist Church. The Female Union Band Society Cemetery opened adjacent to Mount Zion in 1842 and was founded by free women of color committed to caring for one another in sickness and in death. Despite a widely held misconception, the sites are not cemeteries only for enslaved people but are also the resting places of an estimated 10,000 members of Washington's free black community. A vault on the site was used as a hide, pardon me, as a hiding place for people escaping slavery via the Underground Railroad. Those two cemeteries are in a formerly black enclave known from the mid-19th century through the 1930s as Herring Hill, where residents fished for the once plentiful herring in nearby Rock Creek. The area was also home to the capital's black elite, merchants, doctors, lawyers, and clergy. In 1849, Oak Hill was built for whites only, marking the beginning of the end for the black cemeteries next door. White families with relatives buried at Mount Zion moved their remains to Oak Hill. Herring Hill's black residents began moving away, replaced by wealthy white homeowners. In 1950, Mary Logan Jennings, a former Female Union Band Society president, was laid to rest in the Society Cemetery, one of the graveyard's final burials before it was condemned by the city for disrepair and closed to further interments. Two decades later, the cemetery fought off developers and in 1975 was listed on the National Register of Historic Places. But it has continued 
to be a struggle. In late 2021, Ms. Fager discovered a D.C. Department of Transportation work crew digging on the female union band cemetery's northern border to fix a bike path. Enraged, she photographed the work and got it stopped. And the National Park Service, which now owns that section, conducted extensive archaeological studies before continuing. Ms. Fager said, It boiled my blood, the dismissiveness of it all. I didn't even know which rules had been violated at the time, just knew in my bones it was wrong. Paul Williams, Oak Hills superintendent, said that the cemetery plans to offer its struggling neighbors help with fundraising and cleanup. Last year, after years of pleading by the foundation, the D.C. government allocated $1.6 million for managing flooding at the cemeteries. The work will soon begin, allowing Ms. Fager more room for researching the lives of the people interred in the cemeteries. She said, I don't want to keep trying to save the land. I want to save the people and their stories. As someone going through cancer, you think about death and what you want to leave behind, she added. It's important to get this history to the next generation. Next heart. Pardon me, next article related to maternal health comes from Business Insider, written by Brianna Holt, which was published October 1st. One couple packed up an RV and drove 1,300 miles to give birth in Virginia to escape the high black maternal mortality rate in Texas. Three bullet points. The United States has one of the highest rates of maternal mortality among developed nations. These rates are disproportionately higher for black women. Two black women crossed state lines to give birth since they lived in places with low health care ratings. When Mimi Evans, a 35-year-old doula and nursing student from Houston, found out she was pregnant with her third child in 2013, she immediately decided she would not give birth again in her home state of Texas. After experiencing neglect and mistreatment during her first two pregnancies, Evans and her partner began researching top medical facilities in Richmond, Virginia, the city where she was raised and still has family. Two months before her due date, Evans and her partner packed up their belongings in an RV and drove 1,300 miles from Houston to Chesterfield, a town outside Richmond. In Texas, where Evans lives, the rate of maternal deaths more than doubled from 10.3 per 100,000 live births in 1999 to 21.9 in 2019. The United States as a whole has one of the highest rates of maternal mortality among developed nations, with 32.9 deaths per 100,000 live births reported in 2021. For black women, both nationally and in Texas, those rates are disproportionately higher. To avoid becoming another statistic, more and more black women are opting for home births, doulas, midwives, and birth assistants. Crossing state lines to give birth isn't feasible for most people. The ability to travel, whether for an abortion, the birth, or prenatal care during your pregnancy is often deeply grounded in the amount of privilege and resources you have. It's not something that is available to most people, said Dr. Jamila Parrott, 
and OBGYN and President and CEO of Physicians for Reproductive Health, noting that black women who are receiving insurance through government support cannot use their insurance across state lines. She said, everybody deserves proper care in their community, regardless of what state they live in or what their zip code is, and you shouldn't have to travel to seek it. Evans giving birth at VCU Medical Center meant switching health insurance plans, registering her RV in Virginia, and living in a caravan park for over two months. Her family and friends expressed concern with this process. People kept asking what I would do if I went into labor in the RV. I'd tell them if I have a baby in the RV unassisted, then I prefer that rather than having my baby in a Texas hospital. Despite having a positive birthing experience in Virginia, the process of crossing state lines was so tedious and inconvenient that Evans chose to exit the hospital system completely for her fourth pregnancy in 2022, and she gave birth at home with a doula. Parrott warned that crossing state lines, even for those who can afford it, will not address the black maternal mortality crisis. She said, What folks have to realize is that regardless of what state you're in, the place where you deliver is often part and parcel of the same system that is harming folks in our own communities. That isn't to say that some providers or some hospital systems or networks are not working diligently to rectify, but the idea of a so-called sanctuary city for maternal health simply doesn't exist. Crossing state lines to give birth ended up causing more trouble for one mother. In 2019, Erin Monk, a 45-year-old medical assistant, chose to travel from her new home in Charlotte, North Carolina, to Baltimore, Maryland, to give birth to her sixth child. Monk made the decision after realizing North Carolina had a lower health care rating than her former home state of Maryland. She said, I wanted to make sure that I got the best care, so I decided to go back home. But she said the care she ultimately received in Maryland was subpar. Unlike Evans, Monk traveled back and forth for all of her prenatal visits. When a doctor at the original hospital she visited encouraged her to have a C-section, Monk switched to University of Maryland Medical Center, which she calls the worst mistake she's ever made, Monk said she felt like her concerns were ignored. When she began losing amniotic fluid, she said hospital staff told her it was urine. During a pelvic examination, Monk said a doctor wore acrylic nails and rings on her fingers, causing Monk to feel extreme pain, which she said the doctor dismissed. When asked for comment, a representative from the University of Maryland Medical Center said that, for privacy reasons, they are unable to discuss an individual patient's care. When Mock went into labor, she said things got worse. She was sent home from the hospital after suffering from intense contractions and amniotic fluid leakage. This was August, and they kept telling me my due date was September 15th, but I knew they had got it wrong, she said, noting that she was five centimeters dilated at the time. When Mock and her partner made it back to Charlotte, her water broke. I had the option to call an ambulance or find the nearest hospital, but I decided to go back to University Hospital because they have all my records, even though I was treated like crap the entire time, she said. The 3.5-hour drive was brutal. Monk said she underwent all three stages of labor in the car and returned to the hospital 9.5 centimeters dilated. Instead of accepting that the due date was wrong, Monk said the hospital staff asked if she was taking drugs 
and deemed her seven pounds and seven ounces newborn premature. Parrot said, This idea that there are red states and blue states, or there are good states and bad states, to give birth in is harmful. Black women are dying in every state. There is no safe haven for us if we are talking about still being cared for by the same system that just happens to be in another place. Instead of having to cross state lines to give birth, she said, the focus should be on demanding that resources are embedded, connected, and grown within communities so that all black women have the ability to have safe birthing experiences. She said, the reason why we are dying is not because we live in any particular state, but it is directly tied to our racialized experiences within the healthcare system, and you cannot escape that by crossing state lines. That brings me to the end of our time for this week. Thank you so much for joining us for the Black Experience Hour. Programming from AINC is made possible from funding from the City of Thornton Community Development Block Grant. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.